also want to give a shout out, I just saw this online, uh, a little girl that I started to sponsor in our trips to Guatemala when she was five years old. Today she is a young married woman in her 20s. She's watching online right now. So Lesbia, I saw that you're online. Um, your uh, American dad loves you, so uh, hopefully I'll see you soon too. Super excited um, to have Sky Jathani here in a couple weeks. I would, uh, and I don't throw this out a lot because I know people do, you know, it's a weekend, people have plans, but if, if you can change your plans, you should come and be here for it. It is a unique opportunity for our church to have what I think is one of the preeminent Christian thinkers and writers and teachers here. That book that Rene just described with, I was walking out last week and my friend uh, Drew Schaumacher, some of you know Drew, uh, ex-Marine, you know, Drew is kind of like, he's as tough as they come. And, Somebody was saying, ah, you know, who is this guy? And Drew's, Drew goes, this guy's, this book is so good. He goes, I read it, and he goes, it was so profound, I had to go back and reread it again. So if you haven't read with, you should read with. Um, and uh, I'm super excited about him being here. Then he, uh, he started a new series of books, um, and it's based on this concept, uh, this platform called What If Jesus Was Serious? We're going to talk about the first one in a minute. It's, it's the platform book. The second and the third are, what if Jesus was serious about the church? What if Jesus was serious about prayer? The newest is a book that won't be out to the fall. What if Jesus was serious about heaven? Saturday night, that's what we're going to be discussing. Um, and here's what's cool is I was planning the event with Sky, and uh, I was thinking, you know, I wonder if he'd be open for Q&A. And, you know, Q&A, if you're a speaker... You know, it can make you look bad, right? And so I was thinking, oh, you know, I'll ask him. And he goes, what if we split it into half? And he goes, the first I just present, like, you know, the concepts of heaven, which will blow your mind because um, they're not what most of us think. And then he goes, what if I just open up the second half for questions, what anybody wants to ask? So if you want to come and pick Sky Jathani's brain on heaven, um, go to mhcc.life and register for Saturday night. So what I thought we would do in preparation for, for that weekend is use one of those books as a springboard for our spring series. And so we're calling the next bunch of weeks, What If Jesus Were Serious? Now, Sky calls it a visual guide to the teachings of Jesus that we love to ignore. In any of his books, What If Jesus Were Serious? If you don't do devotions, if you don't grab a little time every day, these are the perfect books. Because he takes these topics, really serious topics, he's an ability to take very difficult concepts and boil them down to something quite simplistic. In fact, in every one of them, he draws a little picture. And so what you see here is his handwritten drawings of different concepts that, that he's talking about. So to bring some context of what we're looking at together over these next bunch of weeks, I, I want to do something, again, I don't do a lot, and, and it's just read um, from the introduction to the book. Because I think, while we won't really be going through the material in the book per se, we will use it as a, as a springboard for our discussions over the coming weeks. Here's what he writes in the introduction. He goes, this interpretation that we have of, current cultural land, of the current cultural landscape, as Christians, we assume that we're being marginalized because we take Jesus too seriously. This view says that, that if we just relax and hold our faith more loosely and let popular values override biblical ones, then we'd find more acceptance in our culture. But what if we have it backwards, he asks? What if the underlying malady affecting Christians today isn't that we take Jesus too seriously, but that we failed to take him seriously enough? What if much of the culture's judgment of Christians isn't the result of obeying Jesus, but the result of Christians ignoring him? 
He goes on, several years ago, I really like this, he goes, I taught a class at my church on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous message, which contains many of our faith's most important ethical teachings. On the first day of the class, after reading the full sermon together, I asked the students, how many of you think Jesus actually expects us to live out these commands? No one raised their hand. I was surprised, he said, so I dug a little bit deeper. I asked, well, why shouldn't we take the Sermon on the Mount seriously? It's impossible to obey, one person said. No one can live like this. Jesus was just showing us how we all need God's grace, another student shared. He was illustrating what a perfect look, life looks like and how none of us can obtain it. In their view, Jesus must have preached this sermon while frequently winking at his disciples to communicate, ah, don't worry, you don't have to take any of this seriously. Never mind that he ended the sermon with a story about the perils, perils of not obeying the words. Today, many Christians simply dismiss the Sermon on the Mount as irrelevant, even as they stridently proclaim their allegiance to Jesus in the culture. In my class on the Sermon on the Mount, one stu student offered a version of this excuse when he said, Jesus' commands aren't practical. If we took them seriously, people would walk all over us. And all the others agreed. Loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, giving to anyone who asks is foolish. That's not the way to get ahead, let alone survive in a dangerous world. Was Jesus a fool for following these ideas himself, I asked. After all, by loving his enemies, he ended up on a Roman cross. I had the class in a corner. None of these good Christian people wanted to call Jesus a fool, but they didn't want to say that his teachings were important for us to follow either. This tension between praising Jesus and actually obeying him explains why so much of our contemporary Christianity has lost its moral authority and spiritual credibility. On Sunday, contemporary Christians are eager to worship a crucified Savior who loved and forgave his enemies. But on Monday, we want permission to behave like the schoolyard-built bully who uses fear and anger to get ahead. Once we recognize how eager contemporary Christians have become to dismiss the Sermon on the Mount, our perception with the broader culture begins to make more sense. For example, he writes, data compiled by numerous researchers have found that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. And Christian researcher George Barna concluded, American Christianity has largely failed since the middle of the 20th century because Jesus' modern-day disciples do not act like Jesus. All this confirms why the culture generally views Christians as hypocrites. Statistically speaking, we are. Far from being hostile towards Jesus' message, my experience, this is skywriting still, has been that our society is hungry for precisely the kind of integrity and gentleness, kindness and love that Jesus reveals in this sermon. We proclaim, we who claim to be Jesus' followers and seek a life shaped by his kingdom hold the antidote to the division and the anger that is poisoning our culture. If we want the culture to take Jesus more seriously, maybe we should try it first. After that, if the culture still rejects Christians in our message, at least it will be for the right reason. That's what this book is all about. Let's begin. And so, now hopefully you can see why I like him. So, with that as a way of intro, so shall we begin with what has historically and traditionally been called the Sermon on the Mount. It is Jesus' longest singular teaching and by far his most famous. And I think once we spend the next couple of weeks in this, you'll, you'll 
maybe agree with me, it's likely his most ignored teaching. Here's the funny thing. A lot of people would tell you, I, I think it's not just his famous teaching, a lot of people would tell you, oh, I just love the Sermon on the Mount. To which I would say, really? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> like, really? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Because if you are any kind of human being, and you live in the world, and you try to take it seriously, I'm just being honest, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot in there not to love. And here's why. It's, it's because the Sermon on the Mount, these principles, and, and Jesus often repeated these principles in other places. You'll see that as the weeks go by. These are not just one-off ideas. In fact, many of his parables, I didn't have the time to get to it today, many of his parables just echo these ideas. The Sermon on the Mount is essentially the principles and the patterns and the products of a very distant foreign kingdom. It's the constitution, for you will, as I thought about this, for a new country, a very foreign one. And of course, that makes plenty of sense, right? Leading up to Easter, we spent the last bunch of weeks trying to see Jesus the way Peter, his most famous disciple, did some 30-plus years after Jesus' death. He gave it to, to his traveling companion, John Mark, who, who wrote it down in his gospel. The good news, according to Peter, because he heard Jesus declare it constantly, was this. There's a new king, there's a new kingdom, and you're invited into it. And so Jesus starts his most famous teaching. Well, he starts it with his own, in a sense, declaration of independence from the kingdoms of this world, of the kingdoms of our world. Our, de our declaration of independence. It starts this way. It's funny. We, we have this memorized. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That's kind of what our declaration, what frames, it's the context, the ethos of, of our kingdom here on earth, right? Or at least the American kingdom. The pursuit of happiness. Super interesting. And here's why, because Jesus actually starts his declaration of independence from these kingdoms with the same idea, with the concept of happiness, what it looks like, what blessings look like in the kingdom of God. And it is, as I've been trying to describe it to you over the last couple of weeks, it is a very upside-down kingdom. In, in our kingdoms, right, in the kingdoms of of, of John and, and Joan, right, and Diana and Steve. The pursuit of happiness. If, if you want to pursue happiness, right, you're all good red-blooded Americans. What does it mean? What are you pursuing? When you're pursuing happiness, right, what does that mean? What will make you happy? Now, there is, I'd love for you to fact-check me on this, okay, because I, I've spent some time on this. It's actually fascinating. There's lots of research on this, but you don't need the research. You all have your own little kingdoms too, right? Now, here's the thing. Uh, uh, you know, I know you're better than this, so I, if I ask you what you're pursuing, I know you're going to spiritualize it up, and, and some, of, some of you will say Jesus, and, and I hope that's true. Um, but let's talk about those people out there, right, <laughs> that aren't as good as us. Those people out there. What, what would we say, like, you know, they're pursuing happiness. So, so what, what, what do you think the people out there 
are trying to pursue in order to be happy? What would you say would be, I don't know, the number one thing that people outside of the walls of this place, because this would never happen with us, but the people out there, what would you say that they might be pursuing in order to be happy? Somebody give me something. What would be the number one thing you might think? Money. Money. Well, boy, we know a lot about those people, don't we? It's like we've studied them somehow. According to a recent study cited in Forbes magazine, 79% of Americans believe they'll be happier if they had more money. As a result, as you might imagine, 69%, 70% of Americans also say their desire for money influences their daily decisions. Pretty interesting. What else, right? Why do you want money, right? Why do we want money? What will money give us, like when I get it? Well, I started playing around that because, you know, I, I know some people out there, so I was trying to figure out what, what it is they're trying to get with, with their money, filthy money. And uh, it occurred to me that I think that, that maybe they don't want to be rich, they just want to be comfortable, right? I mean, I, I do, right? I mean, I'm not looking for the biggest house. I mean, a big one would be nice, but not the biggest. I mean, I just want, you know, a, a nice house, some food, Preferably kept in a stainless steel refrigerator, but some food, right? <laughs> nice little nest egg waiting for me in retirement. Del Boca Vista phase two. Talking about that this morning. What else, right? What else? Well, in my kingdom, my kingdom, I want food. Let's see, I want money and I want comfort. And then I, the other thing I'd like in my kingdom is I'd like to, the feeling of getting ahead. Like, what would make me happy? What would make me happy is... Well, winning, right? I, I want to experience the pleasure of, of having a little bit more for myself, you know? I mean, in, in a sense, that's a little bit of the American dream, right? We want a little bit more than those that have come before. Uh, we have a name for this. Uh, it's not keeping up with the Eismans, but it's keeping up with the, right? It's built deeply into our culture. How do I define, actually, if I want... If I'm trying to get comfort or, or success, how would I define if I'm comfortable or if I'm successful? Do you know how I define if I'm comfortable or successful? Based on how I'm doing against the Joneses, right? I look around, I got a little bit more. I'm a winner. Got a little bit less, you know? Got a vinyl floor in my kitchen. I must be really sucking, sucking, you know. I'll leave it at that. Right? How do I feel when I don't live up to the Joneses? Well, I'm not happy anymore. So the Joneses kind of determine my level of happiness. And then finally, this is, this is bigger right now than ever. Finally, in my kingdom, let's see, I would like to have some money. I'd like to have some comfort. I'd like to have some, some success, right? And then finally, you know what I'd like in my kingdom? I'd like a little bit of, of, of fame. You know what I mean? I want to make a name for myself. I want people to know who I am. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks. I'd like a little recognition, some, some influence a little. You know, I want people to think highly of me. In, in corporate speak, right, I, want, I, I would like to have my brand built just a little bit. Now, maybe you're better than me, and I, I hope you are. But if I were going to pursue happiness, as the declaration says, I would say those are probably the things that I would be going after in my pursuit, the things that I would, would, would think would make me happy, the things that I would value, that, that I would argue that we value, maybe, maybe if you're not better than me, that we value in our kingdoms. Think about this, right? This is how we keep score. 
It's how we, we evaluate people. It's how we evaluate ourselves. It's, it's how we create identities. Which is why, can I just be honest? Which is why if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it should just scare the absolute crud out of you. It should, you should read it and go, oh, I mean, you're not going to put this on pillows when you really understand it. You're not going to write it. You're not going to crochet it in anything. Luke, Jesus said these things all the time. It's not a one-off. Luke, uh, in, in a very similar teaching of Jesus, is a little bit shorter than how Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount. Luke outlines who Jesus said was, uh, who is blessed, what's being blessed, and what happiness would look like in this new kingdom of God, right? Here's what he said. I want you to listen to this, okay? I'm, I'm not putting it up. I just want you to hear it the way his, his, his audience heard it. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you'll laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed, for you, you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. In case you've missed this somehow, I, I just made a little summary chart here Maggie could kind of put up. You got that little chart, Maggie? So... These are all the things, if you just kind of look at it, that I was pursuing. I wanted to, I mean, I know you're not, right? But I mean, I would like to, and because I know some people out there. I'd like to be rich. I'd like to be comfortable, right? I'd, I'd like to, to laugh. And the scriptures, that word there, is, is, it, it carries with it the um, concept of haughtiness, right? Like, I'm laughing at my success, my winning over others, right? I'm, I'm kind of, I, it, it, it carries a context of like a, a political rally after you defeat your foe, right? That concept of, I laugh, and, and, and I want to be spoken well of. And Jesus says those are all things that are in his kingdom, things to avoid, but in the kingdom of God, here are things in my kingdom that, that you would, that, that, that are blessings, that, that, that people, and I'll talk about that word in a minute, that are things that are of value, being poor, hungry, weeping, and being hated, excluded, and rejected. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Don't you love the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, ah, oh, it's so beautiful. Really? Like, really? Does anybody read this stuff? That's nuts. It's an upside-down kingdom, right? The values, the patterns, the ethos, right? The unwritten rules, in a sense, right? That they're completely different than every other kingdom. What we want and seem to have a natural inclination and desire for is a woe, right? And what we're doing our best to avoid appears to be a place of blessing. What is this kingdom? Who is this king? And, and let's just be honest. Here's a question you really have to ask yourself, okay? Just being honest. Do you want any part of that kingdom? Seriously, I mean, do you want any part of that? Matthew records another time when Jesus gave this teaching. Um, Luke's version is called the Sermon on the Plain because Jesus had just come down off of a mountain. 
Um, Matthew now records Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus begins to teach his disciples the values of his kingdom, who would be blessed there, what blessing and joy and happiness in his kingdom looks like. I'm going to read it in totality and first. I'm going to put it up, have Maggie put it up, and then we'll take a little closer look. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. There is their, there's the word again. There is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that Greek word there that's translated over and over, blessed, right? What does that mean? So we really understand what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. It has a bunch of meanings, and what I would tell you is every one of them, looking at the Sermon on Mount, I'll tell you, I mean, we could be up here for a year. Every one of these meanings in the Greek for that word blessed is like a diamond. It's the same thing, but when you turn it, it has a slightly different facet. It can mean favored, envied, deeply satisfied, or in its very rudimentary, its simplest form, it just simply means fortunate, right, or happy. And so at its core, this is a teaching from Jesus on, in his kingdom, where he is the king, the one that he has invited you into. Aren't you glad to be invited into this kingdom? Come on! What it means in this kingdom to be satisfied and happy. Who's favored? Who should be envied? To you, skies, the title, if Jesus were to be taken seriously, what do we need to rethink in terms of values? And what does the pursuit of happiness look like for those who follow Jesus? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what I would point out, volumes, like a bajillion books have been written on the Beatitudes. That, that's what these teachings are. But what I would point out is that each of these has a literal meaning, and then, as I said, you can spin it a little bit, and there's a metaphorical meaning and a spiritual meaning, and I think Jesus wanted you to look at all of them and just study them and go, huh, huh. I mean, practically, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, you can be rich or you can be poor practically. You can have lots of money or no money and be poor in spirit. Because someone who is poor in spirit understands that everything that they have, all that they enjoy, all of it has been given to them by God. They are managers of resources, not owners of them. Everything that they have been given is from God. All of it is due to his grace, his unmerited favor. It is a gift. To be poor in spirit simply means that you acknowledge full, complete, total and utter dependence on God and not yourself. People who are poor in spirit embrace this on a daily basis. They get up every day and realize everything that day that they enjoy is not due to anything of themselves. It is all a gift from God. When, when uh, things are going really well for me, right, I am no less dependent today than, than when I have lots of stuff. Right? Then yesterday, before I got the promotion, before I got the job, before I, I hit the pick six, back when I, I lived with a one-bedroom apartment, nothing has changed for me. My heart attitude has not changed at all. 
I don't run away from wealth. God may give it to me to help build his kingdom, but I don't pursue it. It's not my end goal. If it comes, that's wonderful. And if it doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? It's all a gift. And practically, think about this, guys. Why is this a recipe for happiness? Because people that are poor in spirit rely and trust in God and not themselves. If you've been with us on one of our trips to Guatemala, would you raise your hand so you can get some perspective? Those of you that have been, every time we go down there and we meet, what is the one thing that when we sit around we talk about? We're always so surprised that the people down there are so... And what do they have? Nothing. Nothing. Because they live in utter dependence on God. Everything that they get is a blessing to them. Now, here's where I want you to fact check me on this, okay? Go home and look up what social psychologists have discovered repeatedly, over and over. The number one thing that will cure anxiety, depression, promote joy and happiness. Do you know what the number one thing is? Gratitude. People that are poor in spirit are constantly grateful people because they're happy. They know that everything that's been given to them has been given to them by God. It hasn't been earned. How can you be happy if you think you earned it, if you think you deserved it? They can find the freedom of letting go of the outcomes, right? Living just daily going, it's okay. And find the happiness that flows from gratitude. Live, Jesus says, poor in spirit. Now, that's practical, but I would tell you it also plays itself. This is the brilliance of this teaching. You just spin the diamond a tiny bit, and suddenly you're talking about a spiritual principle. People that are poor in spirit, they come to God not believing that, that well, I've, li I've lived a good life. I've done more good than bad, and I'm certainly better than them, and, and I deserve something from God, right? People that are poor in spirit don't, don't walk around upset with God when things don't go their way because they, they feel like they deserve better. They're poor in spirit. They realize, and again, the brilliance of this teaching, they realize that I don't deserve anything from God. Without God, I mean, I'm nothing. God, God owes me nothing. I don't show up to God and go, you know, if, here's why Christianity is, is different, right? Almost every other faith system would be when if you were to die tonight and stand before God, what would you say to him? Well, I would try to point out, you know, here's all the things I did. I tried to be good, and, you know, I think I did more good than bad. Jesus goes, no, that's not going to do you any good. Spiritually, right? Just be poor in spirit and come to the place where, where, where you start to recognize both practically, I actually have nothing, and spiritually, like, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I don't have anything to give to God, right? Everything that I get spiritually is unmerited, pure grace, a free gift. Blessed. Blessed in this world, blessed in the next. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, what Jesus is saying is that blessed are those who see face to face what reality actually is. That live in this world understanding this is actually not the way things are supposed to be. This is not the way. The, 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 the Christian historical teaching is that the world exists now not in the way God created it to be, that it is a fallen, broken place. They stop trying to take, to, to live their lives in a way where they deny that truth and make this place their home because they realize at its core, I've come to realize, 
This is a, a, an inhospitable place. Things decay here and, and go bad. They go wrong. I, I remember the closest person to me to date that, that I've lost is my grandmother. I'm a very fortunate person. Um, but when my grandmother passed, I can remember exactly where I was on Route 46 going to her funeral. And I had this moment, I've shared this before, where it was like somebody opened a shade and suddenly I saw things so clearly about the value of life and the brevity of life and like what am I doing with my days? And it was like, I would say for about 72 hours, the curtain opened up and I saw everything, right? And, and it was like, oh, this whole world. It's, and all of a sudden, I went back to work on Monday. And it was like the shades started going... Those that mourn are people that understand, what well, this, this is not the way it's supposed to be. People who don't mourn are people who spend most of their lives doing, I would say, two things. The first is pretending they're not going to die. I mean, think of the values of our kingdoms, right? How much money, right? I, our culture is obsessed with youth, right? That's the message of our kingdom. Oh, no, we don't age here. We don't, we don't age. Do you know how much money last year we spent on, in America, just in America, on plastic surgical procedures? You don't need to guess, I'll tell you. $17 billion. Don't tell me that's not what, what we value in this kingdom. That's what we value. You all feel it. I feel it too. This is why I spend so much time combing over this little spot right here. Right? Those that don't mourn do everything they can to pretend that, oh, no, no, everything's fine here. Life is just going to go on forever. The other thing that people who don't mourn do is, if, they're, if you're honest, and I fall into this one, they fear aging and death like crazy. In fact, I think what Jesus would tell you is they fear death so much that it's actually hard for them to enjoy living because they spend so much of their time and money worrying about dying. Again, spiritually, turn the diamond, same concept, right? Those who mourn spiritually are those who understand their spiritual condition before God. They don't try to fake it and clean themselves up, right? Make themselves look good and righteous before God. They understand who they are before God, how far they are from God, how deep the sin and the patterns of brokenness in our lives are that we mourn over our own fallenness and brokenness. And guys, it is in the mourning process where you actually begin to do, do what Jesus said. You repent, you turn, you change the way you think, the direction you're going. That's where blessing and change is found in real, realizing how far away we are from being good enough for God and how far God has gone to provide grace and forgiveness of sin. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. I mean this one, right? Meek. Is there anything less attractive than us red-blooded Americans than meek? I mean, who wants to grow up to be meek? What kid dresses up in a Halloween costume as Marvel's Mr. Meek? Who wants their son to grow up to be meek? Their daughter to marry Mr. Meek? Not that she did. But see, you laugh according to Jesus. This is a value that you should probably begin to embrace. Here's why, because the way you think about it is a little bit uh, messed up. 
The, the term Jesus is using here for meek is, is kind of that flip side of the coin of love. When you love someone, in the kingdom of God, we're called to love everyone. When you love someone, you submit to them. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's a word we don't like, but all it means is that you put them first. You put other people ahead of yourself. You constantly choose to go second. Their well-being comes before my well-being. Wouldn't you like your daughter to marry somebody like that? People will find happiness when they focus not on themselves first, but on the welfare and the good of others above themselves. When they have a proper estimation of their own worth, their own place in God's entire kingdom, creation, story. What Jesus is saying is you will find happiness when you discover the world does not revolve around you. And again, I want you to fact check Jesus on this one. Almost every modern-day study on happiness will say the exact same thing. Not only does gratitude bring happiness, but so does doing things for others. If you want to be happy, start living lives of service to others. Take your eyes off of yourself. Spiritual side of this, turn the diamond, right? To be, to be meek spiritually means you realize that you have to completely wholly, utterly throw yourself, cast yourself, rely on the grace of God. You don't show up before God with kind of cocky and arrogant and go, you know, I was thinking, Lord, in terms of what kind of castle I'd get over here in this, this shabby place. You show up before God and you go, look, the only way, the only, I mean, I, I had somebody tell me once, they didn't like a teaching that was in the scripture. Uh, I didn't like it either. But I was saying, I, you know, I don't like it, but I think this is the word of God. And uh, she, say, she said to me, well, when I get up there, I'm, I'm going to have a word with him about that. <laughs> and I said to him, I'm pretty confident you won't. I could be wrong, but I'm fairly confident you'll be face down going, uh, you know, I'm just lucky to still not to be here. There's practical joy here, and there is eternal peace here. Blessed are the meek. Jesus goes on, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. What do you hunger and thirst for? What do you think about when you lay in bed at night? What do you think about when there's a quiet afternoon and there's not much going on, a silent moment? Because that tends to be what your heart longs for, what you hunger for. Is it the beach house? Is it the guy, the girl, the job? You name it. What do you hunger and thirst for? Does anybody hunger and thirst for righteousness? Does anybody sit around and go, oh, God, I just wish there was more justice? Because when you pursue other things, you'll never be filled. I, I love the great line from Jim Carrey. It, this, I heard this 10 years ago. It sticks in my head all the time. Jim Carrey, one of the wealthiest entertainers. I mean, the peak of success, right? Quote, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Jesus is just going, look, I'm telling you, don't hunger and thirst after the things of the wrong kingdom. Hunger and thirst after the things of the kingdom that he's going to go on to describe in this Sermon on the Mount. But there are things like justice and mercy and grace kindness, gentleness, love, long for those things. Set your hearts and your minds on those things. Sit down at night and go, how? How do I get, how do I participate in the achievement of those things? 
practically, right? Commit yourself to doing the right thing. There is joy there. Even when it's hard, even when it's going to cost you, do the right thing anyway. And you know this is right. You all have lived long enough. Do any of you have huge regrets for, for doing the right thing? Oh, I just wish I had chosen the wrong thing. <laughs> right? I mean, you sit around at night going, you know what? I just wish I had slept with more people in college. <laughs> right? You know what? I, I stopped at marijuana. If I had only pursued cocaine, I think I'd be much happier. Anybody get home from the business trip and say, you know, I really regret not going back to her room. See, when, when you hunger and thirst for the wrong thing, right? When you hunger and thirst for unrighteous things, when they get your heart, when they become your master, and they will, they lead to bad places, places of your greatest regret. Your greatest regret is tied to having a hunger and a thirst for unrighteous things. And they're never going to bring you joy. If we take this seriously, we'll change what it is we chase. I could go on. Jesus did. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Happy, blessed are those who give unto others not what they deserve, but who do unto others what Jesus commanded us to do, to do unto others, to love others the way he has loved us, to give to our bosses, our spouses, our neighbors, our children, to give back to them not what they deserve, but what they don't. Grace and kindness and forgiveness, the benefit of the doubt, to impute good motive and not bad. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure in heart here means having a singular focus, a, a laser-like concentration on God. In our culture, we don't even like the word pure anymore, right? We use it to describe water or soap, best I can tell. But when it comes to people, we don't like to apply that word to people. Jesus says, if you would focus on the king, if you would focus on me and my kingdom, you will see God. What will keep you from seeing him are the distractions, setting your hearts and your eyes on other things. Purity, a singular focus on God, leads to great clarity in life. You will see God in that clarity. It helps you see things for the way they are. Isn't that what you want? Don't you want to see things for the way they are? How many of us would have said, as we look back on our life, well, I, I wish I had just seen that that was the way it, it was. Or, I, I wish I had just seen him or her for who she was. When you set your heart, when you set your eyes It'll either bring about clarity, where you set them will either bring about clarity or confusion. Jesus says, if you're looking for joy and you're looking for happiness, set your heart with a singular focus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Of course they will. Why? Because God himself came to bring peace between, Jesus came to bring peace between God and us. He is peace. If you want to be a son of God, then you become a person who has a goal of bringing people together not separating one from another. Don't become the voice of disunity and disruption and separation and gossip. Here's the most practical tip I can give you. Before you open your mouth or push send on the email or hit post on your social media account, ask yourself a single question. Is this going to bring about peace? Or is this going to bring, am I going to be a peacemaker or a peacebreaker?
Here's a better question. Whose son or daughter do I want to be? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which I know you read this and go, you know, I really choked down meek. And now you want me to believe that it's, I'll be blessed? I, persecution is being blessed? But that's not what Jesus said here. What Jesus, and, and uh, what should be his most famous teaching, but isn't because we don't like it. Um, he, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus is saying, look, you're going to be persecuted. The Darwinian principles of this broken kingdom where might makes right, right? And only the strong survive. And all of us are trying to climb ahead of each other. Eventually, eventually, right? Your persecution is going to get all of us. In a world where trouble is the norm, it is expected that you will face these things in your life. The question is, for whose kingdom will you choose to be persecuted? If you choose Jesus' will, it will cost you something. Of course it'll cost you something. But you're kidding yourself if you think the pursuit of your own kingdom or the kingdoms of this world. I'm kidding myself if I think the kingdoms of John won't cost me something. You just have to choose which kingdom you, you'd like to be persecuted for. Righteousness in Jesus' kingdom or yours. I'll close with this. There are two kingdoms and two kings. Jesus's and his kingdom and me and mine. The upside down kingdom of Jesus's and at least from my perspective, the right side up kingdom of mine. Notice that one thing that, that, that strings together each thing Jesus says, they all assume something. They all assume a willingness to sow seeds of blessing to later reap blessing. Do you sense that? See, in John's kingdom, in my kingdom, it's all about blessing now, immediate satisfaction, instant gratification. I want it now. In my kingdom, my happiness is now. But what Jesus is saying is it's temporary. Yes, you'll get some of those things, but I'm telling you, the kingdoms of this world are passing away. It has a lifespan. My kingdom is drawing to a close. Jesus' kingdom, however, is just beginning. It is the dawn in the kingdom of God, where happiness is delayed, where happiness is a result, and where happiness is eternal. And this is the super interesting part, one of the main points of the New Testament. You're never going to understand Christianity unless you see that it is something utterly different utterly different the kingdom of god is utterly different but not only that it is the key to understanding the whole sermon on the mount at the end of the sermon on the mount both in version in matthew which is the sermon on the mount and in luke which we call the sermon on the plain in both of them right jesus says something like this in summary and conclusion he said i have put before you just as i have this morning two ways very famous statements he says you know them many of you he says there are two paths one leads to life and one leads to destruction there are two trees one has good fruit one has poisoned fruit by the way they look very similar often there are two houses one's built on the rock one's built on the sand but you know from a distance they kind of look the same don't they and so Jesus says you choose he says that 
that, that you have two ways and two trees and two houses, two ways to live your life. On the surface, they look very much the same, but one of the ways is poison. It poisons its eaters. It destroys its travelers. One of the houses collapses on its residents. Friends, this is what you've been invited into, the kingdom of God. It is upside down, but there is joy there, both for this life and the one to come. And there is a king there who has not come with sword to slay you, nor with a gavel to judge you, but he has come displaying, and I don't have time to go through it today, but he has come displaying every single one of these attributes. He has shown you every single one. The power for you to live like this is found in Christ, through Christ, who lived this way and promised, if you would believe, that he would give you his Holy Spirit to empower you to live this way too. Everyone. And why did he do that? So, might, so that you might choose the happiness and the joy of the king and the joy of his kingdom. Let's stand and close the song.